Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do love you. And when mornings like this happen where we bump into human failings, Lord, for me, it just reminds me of what your word has said that's so true. And that's that humanity has fallen. We are flawed and in desperate need of a Savior. And God, I thank you that you are our Savior and that on this day, Palm Sunday, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem for his final week before his death on a cross for our sins and then his resurrection to prove his power over sin. And so, God, I pray that as we celebrate that even here today and add some assurance and some confidence to our faith through what we're going to look at this morning, that you might be pleased and you might speak to our hearts and our minds, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I think I know the answer to this question. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the ship, the Titanic. Uh, Raise your hand. Just about every one of us. You'll see a picture of it here on your screen if the PowerPoint's working. There we go. And, uh, and, And the Titanic, as many of us know, was one of the most luxurious, largest, best built ever cruise ships known to humankind. It all began in Britain in 1907 but with the White Star Line, and they had a vision to build a ship that they would see as the most luxurious large ship that had ever been built up to that point. And the finished product came out five years later in 1912, and the finished product was 900 feet long, pause there, that's one-sixth of a mile three football fields long. It was 10 stories high. It weighed 46,000 tons, and it was described by the press as an unsinkable ship. Now, isn't that scary? The reason they did that is because it was made with double-plated hulls of one-inch thick steel. It was also equipped with a highly publicized system of 16 watertight compartments sealed by massive doors that could be instantly shut either manually or electronically back in 1912 by water sensors. And she could stay afloat, the Titanic could, with up to three of the 16 watertight containers completely filled with water. And that was the worst imaginable thing that somebody could ever imagine happening to a ship. She was quite a ship. And I might add, she was beautiful. I I mean, the sleeping quarters, just the third-class sleeping quarters in the Titanic, was better than most people had in their homes. But nothing outdid the first-class quarters that you can see on a picture here. It was like staying in a five-star hotel. And then you have that infamous ballroom staircase, which was six stories high and complete with two world-class musical ensembles, two libraries, and the finest European furniture that money could buy. And then you had the dining rooms. There were three of them, providing French waiters and the best French and English cuisine of the day. They even had a gym. This is an actual picture of a guy in the gym there on the Titanic. It had a squash court, a pool, and a Turkish bath, whatever that is. To be sure, the Titanic was the most luxurious, mammoth, powerful, and safest ship ever built. And the world was looking on with awe and anticipation. you got to remember, we were at the height of the technological revolution at that time. Everything was looking up. Cars had been invented, electricity had been invented, industry was doing fantastic, and the Titanic was now built. And on April 14th, 1912, everything changed that night. That year had seen one of the most mild winters in a long time, and so the Atlantic Ocean uh, was, was filled with iceberg warnings that spring. 
And having taken off from Southampton, England, the Titanic picked up a few passengers along the coast of Ireland and was halfway across the Atlantic Ocean on April 14, 1912. And they had already ignored six iceberg warnings that day. It was now in the early evening. And the Titanic was moving along at a very swift 22 knots on a very calm, glassy ocean when all of a sudden a lookout spotted a very large iceberg. The first officer on duty, a Mr. Murdoch, immediately called for a hard a starboard, which was a severe turn using reverse engine thrust to try to maneuver the boat very sharply. But it was too little too late. And as many of us know, the Titanic brushed against this iceberg, was dealt a lethal blow, and was going to sink within just about two hours. And not having enough lifeboats for all 2,227 passengers and crew, and with the time being very short from impact to sinking, 1,502 people lost their lives in the icy waters that night. Only 725 people survived. It was a tragedy of the worst sort. The Titanic went down. And it wouldn't be seen again till our day and age, another 75 years later, when people with cameras and all went down to look at it. And it was another hard lesson learned during the Industrial Revolution that sometimes the things that seem unsinkable in life can sink. I think we've all learned that lesson. There have been times in life when we think that things are unsinkable in our lives, only to have an iceberg of some sort of circumstance come along and sink it. It happens sometimes in our finances. It happens sometimes in our marriages. It happens sometimes in our parenting. There are lots of things in life that we consider a sure bet, and the reality is is that something comes along in this fallen world, and the unsinkable actually sinks. And so with this image in mind of the Titanic, of the unsinkable being able to sink, I want to ask you a lead-in question this Palm Sunday going into Holy Week, and it's this. Do you ever feel like your faith might be another Titanic? Do you? Do you ever feel like your faith in the historical Jesus with all of its power and luxuries that we talk about all the time here at our church could one day hit an iceberg of, say, opposing historical information or something like that and cause you to sink in an ocean of doubt and disillusionment? And before you say, as many Christians might be tempted to say, well, I don't think that would ever happen to me, and no, Jamie, I never have doubts like that, i got to confess before you here today, I have. I've been a Christian now for 34 years, and there have been periods of doubt and disillusionment about the surety of my faith And I have wondered to myself in my quiet moments, what if none of this is true? What if the New Testament really is just a bunch of made-up stories and optimistic fairy tales? What if Karl Marx was right, that religion is basically designed as an opiate to simply pacify our insecure and senseless lives? What if? What if the faith that you and I have is like the Titanic, bold and brazen and confident on the outside? but just minutes away from an iceberg of historical knowledge that could sabotage our belief in the resurrection of Jesus and his death on a cross for our sins. i got to tell you, sometimes I've wondered, what if Dan Brown is right? What if his novels are not just fiction? What if there actually is some evidence out there that could sabotage the foundation and the underpinnings of this faith in Jesus that you and I have staked 
everything on. I've thought that at times. I would worry about you, quite frankly, if you didn't. I think every deep-thinking person who's open to truth at times is going to wonder, are the things that I have staked my faith and my claim upon as sure, at least as I outwardly say they are? But I got to tell you, every time I think this, and every time when I do think this, that I try to then go deeper in exploring these potential doubts, my wandering and doubting mind gets a reminder. And it gets a reminder of some key truths that my overly critical mind tends to forget every now and then. Key truths that do nothing but bring me back to the core stability of my faith. Key truths that remind me that my faith rests upon something much more solid than me. It rests on something solid that God has provided, and it reminds me that my faith truly is not in danger of becoming another Titanic. And you're saying, what are those things, Jamie? What are those reminders that you get every now and then? Here's what I want to do in our time remaining on this Palm Sunday as we enter into one of the most holy weeks of the year for Christians, where we honor the, uh, the, the life of Jesus, the trial, the crucifixion, the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want us to look at one passage here this Palm Sunday, written solely, now get this, to assure us that our faith in Jesus is not a pipe dream, it's not a wish fulfillment, as Freud asserted, but it's a hard It's a rock-hard reality built upon some pretty rugged historical things that happened. I want to assure us today that our faith in the risen Jesus is not like the Titanic, and it's not in danger of ever letting us down. So if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 12. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. As always, we put the Scripture on your outline. We're also going to put it up here on the screen. And obviously, in 2 Peter here, the Apostle Peter is writing. The clue is that it's called 2 Peter. It's the same Peter who spent three nonstop years being with and following Jesus while he was on this earth. And as if reading our doubtful minds, he begins this section, now don't miss this, by telling us that we need to be reminded of things every now and then. Look at verses 12 to 15, and you'll see what I mean. He says, therefore, I, all, I, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am the body, in him in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. So twice he says we need to be reminded of something, and then once he says you need to be reminded so that you can recall these things on a regular basis. And the obvious question becomes here, what are the things, Peter, that you want us to be reminded of? What are the things that you want us to recall on a regular basis in our lives? We'll look at verses 16 to 18 because he's going to tell us. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So notice a couple of things here that Peter says you and I 
need to be reminded of on a regular basis. And the first one is this, that the life and gospel of Jesus is rooted in historical facts. It's rooted in historical facts. Peter says two key things here in the first couple of verses here, 16, 17, and 18, to make it clear. First, he says that they did not follow cleverly devised myths when it came to the power and coming of Jesus. Now, I got to tell you, folks, that's a loaded phrase there. I mean, it's a phrase worth parking in front of for just a couple of minutes. That word myth there is the Greek word, this won't shock you, mythos. (laughs) There's a transliteration right from the Greek to the English here. And that Greek word mythos means tale, fiction, fable. It was used in Jesus' day to talk about the stories that you tell your kids at bedtime. So for us today, like Jack and the Beanstalk, Little Red Riding Hood, fun stories, maybe with a moral lesson, but obviously stories that are not true. So in Jesus' day, it was stories about Zeus and Hermes and Apollos, or, or, or the writings of Homer. Obviously fiction, mythos, fun stories to tell, but they don't have any historical credibility. So isn't it interesting, with that backdrop, Peter is saying, the stuff that we have told you is not mythos. It is true. It's historically rooted. And just so that we're clear, he says the things that we told you about the power and coming of Jesus are not mythos. Power refers to what? His miracles, his healings, his amazing teachings. The coming refers to probably his first coming, the fact that he appeared 2,000 years ago, but also commentators point out his second coming which is going to come sometime in the future. So Peter's wrapping this whole thing up, and he's basically saying that there are some who are going to be tempted to try to tell you that the things that we have shared with you are nothing more than a bunch of made-up stories, pipe dreams and fairy tales, mythos. They're even going to try to tell you that miracles don't happen, people don't rise from the dead, and that you don't need a God to die for your sins. And Peter's saying adamantly here, no way. These things are not fictional fairy tales. They're not childhood stories. These things really happened. And obviously, if you're having a discussion with Peter at that time, you'd say, well, dude, how do I know that? I mean, how do I know these are not myths? I mean, there were lots of myths flowing around back then, lots of myths flowing around today. You got four other world religions that claim to know truth as well. How do we know? Peter, that this stuff really happened. And this is the second thing I need you to notice about Peter's claim here. Look again at verses 16 to 18. Let's stay with the text. He says, for we were eyewitnesses and we heard. Now now again, pause in front of that there because it's easy to drive by this too quickly. Notice first that little two-word word he uses, or two-letter word there he uses, we. He says, we were eyewitnesses, meaning he and John and James and all the other apostles, Paul the apostle who saw the risen Jesus, Paul would say there were 500 people, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, I believe, 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus and even adds many of them are still living today at that time, you can go check it out. So, so there's a plurality going on here. We all saw this stuff that we are writing to you about. And then they say we were eyewitnesses. That's a really great word. It means an onlooker, one who is present at an event and literally telling you what they're seeing. 
This was a word used in classical Greek literature of that time to describe somebody who would be present at a secret society meeting where the rituals and stuff were happening and they saw an inside look at these secret things. Peter's saying, we've had an inside look at what God is up to on planet Earth and we're writing to you about it. We're exposing this whole deal to you. He's saying, myself and others have seen Jesus. We've heard him, and we're letting you know about it. And so it's reliable historical information. And what you need to know, guys, is that this is the main argument that almost every New Testament writer uses. They knew that people were going to doubt what they were saying. They knew that people were going to cast a shadow of doubt uh, on the things that they were revealing about who Jesus was. And so they all used this form of argument to say, look at our lives, look at our integrity. We're not crazy. We've never lied before. We are, we are wonderful members of society, and I'm telling you what we have seen. So look at how John would make this argument in his first letter. This is pretty clear. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you might have fellowship with us and with Jesus. So like, it's like a scratch CD there, isn't it? Like over and over again. He's saying we've heard, we've seen, we've touched our hands, we've seen it, we testify, we've seen, we've heard. I mean, I think he's trying to make a point. He's saying, we saw him. And when we saw him and touched him and realized who he is, we can't help but tell you. Because God visited this planet. He did so for a purpose. And he did so to bring you and me to him. And then we don't have time for this. But I think it's fascinating. Peter, again, hammering home this argument here. In verses 17 and 18, go back to Peter, even gives us an example of an event that he saw. Did you guys pick up on that? I, I mean, he says, we heard the voice on the mountain. Some of you don't know what that's about. Well, we teach that in Sunday school, so maybe we can get you there one day. But, but the voice on the mountain was the transfiguration found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And you might remember the story. It's when Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus, and three things happened. Jesus was then transfigured before them. It says that he changed his appearance. He was white as lightning. It was just like a totally divine transformation. And then the second thing that happened that had to have blown their minds is that Moses and Elijah appeared there with Jesus. Those guys have been dead for an awfully long time. So Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And then to seal the whole deal, a voice comes from heaven that they knew was God the Father. And that voice says, this is my son, whom with I am well pleased. And then, it's interesting, Peter doesn't include this, but there were, there were three other words that God the Father said on the mountain there. Do you remember what those were? Listen to him. I got to tell you, if God appeared with a voice and Moses and Elijah were next to you and God said, listen to him, what would you do? You'd probably listen to him. <laughs> and that's exactly why this was so memorable to Peter. You don't forget stuff like that. So add all this up here, guys. In the first century, when Jesus lived and taught, you have these normal I mean, very normal, respected men. Some of them were, were working-class fishermen. Some were scholars and leaders like Paul the Apostle. But one thing that they all had in common is that with firsthand knowledge, they saw and witnessed the powerful, life-changing things that Jesus said and did. And they wrote it down. 
And you know what's interesting? You know what we call people like that? Historians. That's what we call them. I mean, it seems kind of watered down to call Peter an historian, but the reality is that's what he's claiming to be here. He's saying, I'm no different than any other guy that writes during a certain time in history and look at my integrity, look at the veracity of my life. I'm not crazy. I don't have illusions. I'm telling you what I saw was what I saw, and he records it in history. And though this is for another sermon, what you guys need to know is that the documents that we have from the time of Jesus' day, the gospel writings, did you know that as far as documents of antiquity go, they are more reliable in their historical factuality than any other document from anywhere near that time? You're saying, how could that be? Well, there's two things that historians do, modern-day ones, to try to have confidence in documents from antiquity. Two things. The first thing that we do is we see how close the copies are to the actual event. I mean, we don't have any documents from, except for the Dead Sea Scrolls, really before the time of Christ of any value. In other words, the the, the earliest copy we have of Aristotle, for instance, is 1,200 years after Aristotle lived. The earliest copy we have of Plato is about 1,000 years. Homer, about 900 years. You guys get the idea. And we have great confidence that Aristotle, Plato, and, Ho- Plato and Homer wrote and did all the things they did. The earliest copy of Caesar, I think, is 700 years. I mean, this is all ballpark figure, but, but, but that actually gives us confidence because they copied things pretty well down there, uh, down back then. But, but the, the earliest copies we have are within hundreds of years of the actual events from 2,000 years ago. And I get this. When it comes to the New Testament, however, the earliest full copy of the New Testament that we have is from 300 to 400 A.D., half the distance from Plato, Aristotle, or Caesar. And you're saying, yeah, but still, that's like three or 400 years after event. But get this, we have about 100 fragments of documents that occur just within anywhere from 30 to 100 years after the New Testament events. So within one or two or three generations, we have all these fragments that are in our museums of the Gospel of John, of parts of the Gospel of Mark. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the date before the time of Christ, that was huge because now we have so much confirmation of what Isaiah said. Before that, the earliest copy of the Old Testament we had was like 800 or 900 A.D. And so you guys get the idea. When we look at at, at documents from antiquity, the confidence that we have in the New Testament blows everything else out of the water. That's the first thing that historians look at. You know what the second thing they look at is? It is then how many copies do you actually have, the number of copies. Because the more time it was copied, the more times it could be you know, construed differently or what have you, because they didn't have printing presses back then. And get this, within just a few centuries of the time of the New Testament period, we have 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament. I mean, we have like a hundred of Plato's and Aristotle's work, again, dating hundreds of years after the time. We have 5,000, and get this, they agree in 99.9% of the details. The purity is amazing. And so what's the point in all of this? The point is, guys, that we can take confidence in the historical facts surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus. At least, I can say this, at least as much confidence, actually more, than any other historical truth. 
I mean, if something comes along to controvert your faith, then guess what? Everything we know about the ancient world is up for grabs. Everything. Your faith is not like the Titanic. Dan Brown's novels are fiction. Nothing's going to come along to contradict what we have such solid surety about already from these eyewitnesses who were there. Now, believe it or not, as if all of this were not enough, and we could probably just say amen right now and let you go 12 minutes early, but we're not. As if all of this were not enough, Peter goes on to give another line of evidence that our faith has the surety of something that is unsinkable. And if you've ever driven a manual transmission, you guys know I'm a car guy, and you've ever tried to go from first to third, it's like really awkward if you skip second gear. Peter's going to go from first to third right now. I mean, it's really a disjointed thing, but, but once you get it, it makes sense because he says that not only do you have historical evidence, but the life and gospel of Jesus is rooted in fulfilled prophecy. Now, now isn't that interesting? Look at verses 19 to 21. He says, right after he lays out the eyewitness thing, he says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what's he saying? I think most of us here know today, I think, that prophecy is simply the ability to foretell what is to come. That was what a prophet was in the Old Testament. So you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the major prophets, and then you got all these minor prophets like Joel and Amos and Hosea and the Italian prophet Malachi. And so you got all these prophets. That was an inside biblical joke that only if you know the Bible get it. I'm telling you, you guys got to go back to Sunday school. You'll start to get the humor. You got all these prophets in the Old Testament, all of them. And, and, and they have one thing in common, and that's that they were foretelling what was going to come, and specifically what was going to come with God's Messiah, with the Savior to redeem us from our sin. Now, here's my point. What Peter is saying here is that hundreds of years before the time of Christ, because the Old Testament period we know ended about 400 B.C., nothing, nothing was written after 400 B.C., and then Jesus didn't come until obviously about 4 B.C., right around the A.D. conversion, so you have 400 silent years, and what Peter is saying is that hundreds of years before the time of Christ, holy men wrote the Old Testament and predicted with great detail what was to come with the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what Peter is saying is, look close, it all has come true in him. And you're saying, like what? I, this is really for a whole other study, a whole other sermon. We should probably do a series someday on prophetic literature. But just let me give you a water hose effect right now. Your head's about to swim. But let me just throw this at you. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, it tells us that there will be immaculate conception and a virgin birth. And in Matthew 1, 16 to 18, that recorded is true of Jesus. In Micah 5, verse 2, it tells us the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. In Matthew 2, 1, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. In Jeremiah 31, it says that there will be an infanticide, a killing of infants around that time. And sure enough, in Matthew 2, 16, Herod leads an infanticide. In Hosea 11.1, 1, it says that he will escape and flee to Egypt. And in uh, Matthew 2, verse 14, Jesus escapes and flees to Egypt. In Isaiah 53, it says that he'll be rejected by the Jews. And in John 11, or chapter 1, verse 11, he's rejected by the Jews. In Zechariah 9, it says that he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's Palm Sunday. And in John 12, we read that he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
Then next slide. In Zechariah 11, 12, it says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and Judas betrayed him for how many pieces of silver? Anybody know? 30. In Psalm 22, it says that his hands and feet will be pierced. In John 20, they are. In Psalm 69, it says that Jesus will be given gall and vinegar on the cross. In John 19, that comes true. In Psalm 22, it says that the soldiers will cast lots for his garments. In Mark 15, that comes true. And in Psalm 16, verse 10, it's kind of a veiled prophecy. It says that my Holy One, capital H, capital O, will not see decay which most tend to mean, and the New Testament did, that there will be a resurrection, and certainly on Matthew 28, verse 9, we see, read about a resurrection. This is just a sampling, guys. I mean, down to very minute details, like being given vinegar on a cross or being born in an obscure town like Bethlehem, prophecies that were made hundreds of years earlier have come true in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Peter's saying this is God's way of telling you that your faith in this guy is not like the Titanic, that it's not something that you're ever going to regret. It's rock solid. And again, being a lawyer's kid, I've heard some of the greatest arguments against this in my time, and I'm glad. Bring them on. And you know, I tell you guys not to email me criticism. Bring it on on this one. I mean that. Email me your best stab at why this can't be true, because here's the best I've ever heard. And, and, and this has some merit. People have said, well, couldn't they have orchestrated all of this? I mean, come on. They could have read all these prophecies, gotten together, and kind of centered all the life of Jesus around this. Like, you ever seen the Truman Show? Like, one big Truman Show or something like that. I mean, couldn't this be that? And though my cute, funny answer to this is that we have the best and brightest in Washington trying to orchestrate things, and that's not working very well. <laughs> the serious answer to it is that that's possible. We have to admit that it's possible. But then you have to ask, which is more likely? That they're able to pull off the biggest ruse known to humankind, in which, again, there were hundreds of people, thousands of people, looking on to this, saying, is this really the Savior? Is this really the Messiah? Did he really rise from the dead? And somehow they were able to pull all of this off, fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies without anybody catching on at all, because nobody's ever written any history about this. Which is more likely, that that is happening or that actually this happened and prophecies were fulfilled? Again, when I think like that, I go through doubts, guys. I go through severe doubts in my life. I do. I've been honest about that. But when I think rightly and reasonably and rationally like that, I go, okay, Jamie, your faith is solid. It, it, it's solid. I, I mean, if you're a betting man, I'd bet more on this, and I have, than on that. So add all this up. You got this Jesus that we're going to honor here during Holy Week. He's rooted in history. He's rooted in fulfilled prophecy we got five minutes left. What does all of this mean? What bearing does this have on my faith in life today? Two things I want to leave you with, two realities that this passage here in Peter make very clear to us on this Palm Sunday day. The first thing is this. Here's the first reality. Jesus existed. Jesus existed. And you're saying big whip. Well, bear with me on this. 
You know, it's interesting. When you watch, like, if you ever watch the History Channel specials around this time, they're, they're the one on Killing Jesus tonight. You might want to dial into that, but because O'Reilly did that, and it's actually pretty good stuff. But, but many times when they do the History Channel stuff, you know, they're taking pot shots at our evangelical faith. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It's done by a lot of liberal renegade scholars who doubt the resurrection, who doubt the miracles, and they're just trying to have a more honest look at Jesus, you know, and I've watched most of those. But you know one thing I've noticed that they never deny? Now, isn't this interesting? They never deny Jesus existed. Have you ever noticed that? They've never done a special on that one. And the reason is, is because we have these historical documents, and they really are historically reliable as far as documents of antiquity go. And so, in all good integrity, they can't deny that it really happened. In other words, here's the deal. Conservatives and liberals alike agree that he walked the earth, he ate and he drank, he slept, he lived in Palestine, he had a mother named Mary and a father named Joseph, he engaged, engaged in an itinerant ministry for at least three years, he died on a wooden cross, and by every evidence he rose three days later. These are the things that are rooted in history. He existed. And that's reality number one that gives our faith surety. Now, if you buy that, now watch this, here is what you've just talked yourself into as reality number two. And that is that if you agree that Jesus existed, then you need to admit that he said the things that he said and he did the things that he did. You're saying, how's that? Well, because the only reason you know he existed is because of four historical documents that we fondly call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these same historical documents that have convinced you and even convinced a lot of unbelievers today that he really existed are the same historical documents that tell you what he did and what he said. And it's interesting. What, what people try to do today, they say, well, I want to admit he existed, but I don't want to believe all that other stuff about him. And I go, well, isn't that just convenient, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine reading a historical document, say, about Abraham Lincoln and reading about the things in his life and saying, well, I like that. I think I'll believe that. But I don't like that, so I don't want to believe that. See, we'd never do that with any other historical document because that would lack integrity, that would lack credibility, but we don't mind doing it with the Gospels, and I think I know why. It's because we really are uncomfortable with some of the things that Jesus has said. We're uncomfortable with some of the claims that he has made in our lives, but you can't have it both ways. We'll wrap up with this in a minute. In other words, the same documents that tell you he has existed are the same documents that tell us he did miracles, healings, amazing te teachings, he died, and he rose from the dead on the third day. And he made claims like this, I'm the door. If anybody enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. See, that's why I think we pick and choose. Because <laughs> we read things like that and we go, hey, I just want to think that Jesus was like on par with Gandhi. He was really cool and a great peacekeeper and, you know, uh, ate right and things like that, you know, but, but I, don't, I don't really want to buy into all that, that heavy stuff. But you see, it's the heavy stuff that's the life-changing stuff. It's the heavy stuff that brought you and I here today on this Palm Sunday. And so in the end, once we get this far, if you're able to intellectually, and hopefully you are, get to the point where you realize he existed and that he said the things that he said and did the things that he did, then you're ready for C.S. Lewis's great, great, great challenge. In his groundbreaking book, Mere Christianity, which was written almost 70 years ago now, in fact, it was 70 years ago, Lewis said this. He says, once you understand Jesus, you're only left with three, oh, nope, not the quote yet, go back one. You're only left with three options, and that's that either he is a liar, give me that, there you go, he's a liar, 
he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. See, see, Lewis was battling something in his day that you and I battle today, and that's it. And I know you've got people like this, and that's it. You know, they're really, I mean, mass culture today, if we did a poll of mass culture here in Scottsdale and Phoenix, I'll bet you dimes to dollars 90% of people would say Jesus existed, right? Easily. I mean, it's actually vogue to think that Jesus existed and that he was kind of cool and that, you know, he kind of floated a couple of feet off the air and said some really cool things. And, you know, that, that's the kind of the image we have of Jesus. Uh, but the reality is, is that those same people that would say Jesus existed um, would try to also get away with saying he was a really good teacher he was a really moral guy, and he taught some really awesome things about God. But if you said to them, well, do you think he was God? And if so, why did he come? All of a sudden, now the conversation will get, at the very least, a little bit awkward. Because the reality is, is that we don't want to honor that aspect of Jesus's life. So we want to have Jesus, but we want to have our own image of Jesus, not the Jesus who is. And this is what Lewis was, was wrestling with. And so Lewis said, really, once you understand what the gospel writers say about Jesus, you're only left with three options. You either think that the guy they described was a liar, in other words, the things he said was just not true, he lied to us, or he was a lunatic, because only lunatics think that they are God and claim to be God, they should be locked up, Lewis said, or your third option is that he is the Lord, now don't miss this, who is to be accepted and worshiped. Now look at how Lewis would say it in his day. I like this quote from Mere Christianity. Now we're ready for that. He says that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. He says you must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And I don't know about you guys, but that moves me. I mean, it's just cutting right to the heart of it all. He either is who he said he is, and we trust in the documents that we have that were written by very credible men who were with him, or we just say, I don't buy it. But don't take this middle ground that kind of wants to have your cake and eat it too, that wants to have your own self-satisfied, self-sufficient life in which you're just doing your own thing and just give God a little bit of tip every now and then. That's not an option left open to us. You're either all in or you're not in. That's the claim that Jesus makes in our life, and those that knew him make the same claim. And so honestly today, my goal as we head into Easter next week, really today's message was for those of you who already believe, and my goal today was an encur to encourage you just to keep on keeping on, and that the belief you have, even though it gets rattled at times, is a lot more solid than you might realize, because it doesn't reside in you. It resides in Him. He is the one who came for you. He is the one who loves you. He is the one who broke into history and did all the things that He did and said all the things that He said, and get this, this is for another sermon, but he's even the one who's empowered you to believe in the first place. Did you know that? He is. So everything about your faith resides more in God than it does in you. And it cannot be shaken. It's not going to be another Titanic. For those of you who have yet to believe, I invite you today, I call you today, to place your faith and trust in him. And you will never be disappointed. Eternally, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you for the surety of your word, for the confidence that we have in the Gospels, and Lord, for how all of that points us to our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ, whom we honor every day, every moment of our lives, with particular emphasis, Lord, as a church this holy week. And so, God, I pray that as we go out of here now and at our various congregations and we give cogent thought to our lives, and even this week, Lord, to a special worship of the last week of Jesus' life here on this earth, I pray, God, that you would, at the very least, remind us that our faith is grounded in very sure things, in things that will never disappoint us, in things that always point us to you. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your grace is real. Thank you that you are good and that you are holy and that you are forgiving. And we celebrate that this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you on